invite you to back to Luke chapter 1, verse 32, verse 33, say, He will be great and we will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. Okay, so before we launch into what we've got in front of us um, today, let's just take stock just for a moment or two. Where are we? And uh, what, what are we doing? Well, we're looking at uh, recognising Jesus, the offices and the natures of Christ. That's our sermon series. And we have, in recent weeks, begun to examine the way in which Jesus Christ came into the world And he entirely fulfilled these Old Testamental roles. These roles that God established to mediate between himself and humanity. That's what we've been looking at, isn't it? I mean, we saw, what was the first one? We saw that Jesus is prophet, that he is God's word. Then we saw that Jesus is also priest, that he is the one who has made atonement And he is also the one who is currently making intercession. Well, today that brings us kind of neatly and tidily around to the third and the final Old Testament office that Jesus fulfills. So today, what you, what me, what we should be focused on is the fact that Jesus Christ is king. Jesus Christ is king. And let's not delay. We've got a lot to cover this morning. So let's think about this. We're going to look at a few major headings. The first of those is this. This is our first major heading. Please get this. Jesus is king. And he is king over his people. He is king over his people. Okay. In modern music, in uh, pop music, it is increasingly increasingly common for artists to go old school, isn't it? It's increasingly common for the likes of Rihanna or Eminem, whoever it might be, to whenever they're releasing a single, to sample an older tune, isn't it? You know, they'll release a single, but they might sample a bass line from a 1970s funk tune. Or they might sample a sort of uh, a 1980s drum track or something like that. So they go old school. Well, under this first heading, Jesus is king over his people. That is what we are going to do, okay? We are going to go old school and we are going to sample, wait for it, we are going to sample the Westminster Confession of Faith. Now, if you're not familiar with what that is, The Westminster Confession of Faith is what's called our uh, subordinate standard. Okay, so this is really, what would you say, a summary of doctrine, I suppose. The summary of doctrine that we as a congregation or we as a church would adhere to. And as part of that summary, the guys who wrote the confession... They actually dealt with this very subject that we're dealing with under this first head. And they asked the question, how doth Jesus execute 
the office of king. And what I want us to do just now in this first heading is to consider here the three-pronged answer that they give to that, that the confession gave to that question, okay? So if you're ready, let's think about three sub-points, three ways in which Jesus reigns supreme over you. Three ways that he reigns over this congregation, three ways that he reigns over his church, his people. So you ready? Firstly, think about this. As king, Jesus subdues a people to himself. He subdues a people to himself. Okay, for this, we're going to need to use our imagination for a moment. Okay. So, imagine that you were a king in the, uh, in the ancient world. I know, I grant you that, uh, that requires a, a quite a good degree of imagination. But imagine that you are a king in the ancient world, but a king who is seeking to expand his territory. How are you going to do that? And how are you going to go about expanding your territory? Well, if a king in the ancient world wanted to increase his kingdom, the first thing that he would do would be to look at the nations and the enemies around him, wouldn't he? You know, he would look to them, he would identify a people. Then what would he do? He'd get his army together, wouldn't he? And he would move to that people and he would conquer them, right? Well, in many ways, that is exactly what Jesus Christ has done for his church, isn't it? I mean, he is king. And yeah, in a spiritual, not a geographical way, he has identified for himself a people. And he has gone to those people. He has, by his grace, through his word, through his spirit, he has conquered them eternally by dealing with their sin. Those people who were formerly on the outside, you know, those people who were formerly on the fringes, those people who were formerly enemies of this kingdom, they have been brought in and they have been made loyal subjects of the king. Isaiah 55, verse 5 says this. It says, You will summon nations you know not, and they will hasten to you. Why? Because God has endowed you with splendor. So the first sub-point here is that the, the king, our king, has subdued a people, and he subdued them to himself. Okay. He subdues, identifies the people who get it. What's next? What else? Well, a second strand here is that Jesus Christ, as our king, he doesn't just go to the people and subdue them. He also rules sovereignly over his people. Rules sovereignly. Okay, folks, if, you, if, if I was to ask you to think about a modern-day king. Where does your mind go? If I was to ask you to name a modern-day king, who would you say? I kind of struggle with that. You know, um, my mind kind of just automatically goes to the likes of, I know they're not kings, but, you know, the likes of Prince William 
or uh, Prince Charles or guys, guys like that. Well, what we've got to realise is that that sort of kingship, that's a million, billion miles away from the office of king that existed in the Old Testament. Because, you know, I'm sure that these guys do a great job, you know, uh, William and Charles and guys like that. But really, those blokes are figureheads, aren't they? They're more sort of a representative of the people. Whereas the kings of the Old Testament, those guys, I mean, those guys, they were proper kings, you know? They, they properly ruled their people. These guys were really in charge of their nations. Because you see, the, the kings in the Old Testament, they made the decisions. So if there was an economic decision, they would make it. If there was a legislative decision, if it was a military decision, the kings would make those decisions. Now, sometimes they were, they were godly with the power they had. And if you read through scripture, sometimes it's pretty clear that they were pretty wicked with the power that they had. But there's no doubt, there's no getting away from the fact that the kings in the Old Testament... They were the guys who had the power. And what we have to understand this morning, we're considering Jesus as the fulfillment of this Old Testament kingly office, is not only does he rule over us in complete and absolute sovereignty and power, but his rule is also a rule of love. You see, yes, okay, he makes legislative decisions, if you like, but the law that he has given us in his word is a law of love. That, yeah, okay, if you like, he has got a royal scepter of power in his hand, but his other arm is around his church in care. He is a God who is in complete control of his nation, but he's also the most merciful monarch. You know, he rules you, but he loves absolutely each and every one of us, and he rules for our benefit in his kingdom of grace. So you you follow me so far? We've seen that our king... He subdues the people. We've seen that he rules over us and he rules over us in power completely, but also in love. But I said there was three strands to this sort of old school first point. So what's the third? Well, our king also defeats our enemies. He defeats our enemies. Now, if we were, all of us in here, to take a sickie for the remainder of the week, okay? If we were to phone in work and say, right, we're not coming in, we're feeling a bit ill. Or if we were to to sky the university and if we were all to come in here day by day and to uh, go on a reading binge. If we were to try and read through the whole of the Old Testament together as a congregation, I think one of the first things that might strike us is, of course, the frequent battles that we read about involving the people of God in the Old Testament. I mean, there's a lot of fighting in the Old Testament, isn't there? 
These Philistines were forever sort of attacking the people of God. The Assyrians, they were forever attacking Israel. And you see, because of that, an essential element of the Old Testament kingly office was that of military protector. Military protector. Well, again, in Jesus Christ, we see that role completely fulfilled because Christ, he defends you. Christ protects his people. He protects his church. But from whom? Who does he protect us from? Well, think about this. Christ, our king, he combats our sin. He does, doesn't he? When he acts to uh, destroy our indwelling sin, he wages war on the wickedness that still, even after our salvation, it still lingers in our hearts. You know, just as in in the Old Testament, in that story of of David and, and Goliath, you know how the people of God wanted to send their best warrior out to fight on their behalf? Well, that's what Jesus Christ does for us. See, Jesus Christ sends to us his best warrior. He sends his Holy Spirit into our hearts to fight that lifelong battle against our sin. But more than that, our king also protects us from the attacks of Satan. You see, there... There's no doubt about it, is is there? You know, even as Christians, even though we are secure in the kingdom and the nation of Jesus Christ, we still face ongoing and frequent raids from the devil, from the evil one, don't we? Ongoing and frequent raids. But the great truth that we'll end this point with just now is that in that continuous battle, with the devil our king is already victorious our king is already victorious you see Satan does try and attack us and he will try and spiritually wound you but ultimately your sovereign has already won the war okay there's going to be skirmishes that break out here and there, there will be. You may even be under attack from Satan this morning. But you have to see that at Calvary, at Golgotha, what happened? At the cross, Jesus Christ won. You see, at the cross, the banner of our king was raised up over the battlefield. It was, and it stands there forever strong. At the cross, Jesus Christ was enthroned over the hearts of his people. So let Zion be glad. Let Zion rejoice. Because Jesus Christ is king. And he is king over his people. He is king over his church. So... We get it. We've we've sampled uh, the Westminster Confession of Faith, if you like. And Jesus Christ is king over his people. But, friends, there is more good news. So let's consider a second heading. Let's consider the fact that Jesus Christ is king. And he is king over 
creation. He is king over his church, his people, but he is also king over creation. Okay, so in Edinburgh, in the beautiful city of Edinburgh, in Scotland, uh, where I used to live, there was um, for many years, you know, the usual strength was for decades, maybe centuries, there was this kind of royal police force that had a very special job. It was connected to uh, Holyrood Palace. If you've been there, Holyrood Palace is pretty much smack bang in the centre of the city. So there was a royal police force attached to the palace. Now, I always thought, come on, that is a pretty cushy number, isn't it? You're a policeman, it's a pretty easy job to to be a a royal policeman there. Because basically, these guys had a pretty small area to patrol or police. Just the immediate area around uh, Arthur's seat and uh, Holyrood Palace. A very, very limited area. And when we're thinking about these Old Testament kings, I guess what we've got to see is that there's something similar going on there, isn't there? Because, yeah, we've seen that these kings were immensely powerful guys in the Old Testament. We've seen that. But their power that they had was always geographically limited. You know, they were kings in all their splendor and all that. But they were always kings within the bounds of Israel. Now, what we've got to appreciate when we're considering our Lord as king is that his rule is entirely and utterly different to that. You see, yes, Jesus died. And when he did that, above his head was a sign that said, King of the Jews. But in reality, his reign is different to that. His reign is limitless. It is an immeasurable kingdom. His is a, a dominion that knows no bounds Whatsoever. I mean, yes, he's king over his people, and he's king over us in here, and he's king over his church. But he is also king over all creation. I mean, Colossians 1 says this. It says, he was before all things, and in him all things hold together. Christ is the originator of everything. I mean, everything that ever was owes its existence to Jesus Christ. Now, what does that mean? It means that he is then sovereign. It means that he is monarch. It means that he is the one who is ruler over all. But just as a moment ago we saw that the cross is crucial to our understanding of Jesus' reign over his church, here we see that the resurrection is key to understanding his rule and his reign over all creation. Please think about this. It was only after the Father raised the Son to life that Christ was fully enthroned over all things. 
It was only after Jesus Christ walked out of that tomb, living and breathing, that Jesus was designated the sort of full and complete command of monarchy. Because it was only then that Jesus could, to, could go to his disciples, after he'd been raised from the dead, and he could say to them, Now all authority under heaven and earth is given to me. It was only after the resurrection, it was only after Jesus Christ had been raised to life, that Paul could write to the Ephesians. What could he write? He could write, well, that the Father raised Christ from the dead, and that now he has done what? He has placed all things under his feet. Christ is raised from the dead, and now he is king over all. Think about that. He's king over all. He is king over all that happens in the United Kingdom. He is king over our government. And he is king over our laws. He is king of all the countries that are represented here this morning. He is king over them. He is king of all people at all times in all parts of the world. More than that, he is king of the earth and he is king of the heavens. He is king over the planets, over the solar systems. He is over the sun and the moon. Yes, he's king over mankind. But he's also king over all the angelic and heavenly beings. Christ's jurisdiction knows no bounds whatsoever. He sits on his throne above all things with his crown on his head, with the earth as his very footstool. Psalm 103 says this. It says, the Lord has established his throne in heaven and his kingdom rules over all. Friends, Jesus Christ is king. He is king over his church. But he is also king over his creation. But I tell you this. That leads us to a very, very sobering thought. That Christ is king over all things. Follow me in this. We've seen, okay, that that these Old Testament guys, the kings, that they acted in every area of community life. You know, we've seen that they they were the guys who, who made the laws and the military decisions and all of that. But there was another area, a crucial area where they acted. You see, the Old Testament kings, they also acted as judge they acted as judge so consider now what Jesus as king of creation means for us here I mean it means that because he is sovereign over all people you know that he is sovereign over all things it means that one day that he is going to act as judge and he's going to act as judge over all people What a sobering thought that is. Jeremiah 23, 5 says, He will reign as king 
And what will he do as king? He will reign as king and he will execute justice in the land. There's a day coming. A day coming pretty soon when all peoples will stand individually in that royal courtroom and they will be judged by the one who sits on the throne. So I guess the the question that we've got to wrestle with this morning, the question that you've got to wrestle with this morning, is how is that day going to go for you? I mean, really, how is it going to go for you, a current spiritual state? Because I tell you this, it can really only go one of two ways. And on that day, you will either be declared a trap against the great king because of your unbelief and because of your rebellion, or you will be declared loyal subjects because of your repentance and your faith in the king's work. There's only one of two ways it can go. Because it is true. It is undoubtedly true. That Christ is king, friends. He is judge. And because of that, every knee will bow. So we've seen that he is king. And he's king over his church. And he is king over creation. What I want us to do, just as we close, is to really sort of jump in the time machine a wee bit, go back to the first point, that first idea that Jesus Christ is king over his church. What I want us to do in conclusion is just to think about two simple implications of that. Okay? So our third heading is really two implications of Jesus as king for London City Presbyterian Church. For the believers of London City Presbyterian Church. Two implications. And the first of those is that given all that we've seen this morning, surely we must be submissive and obedient subjects. You get it, don't you? You see what I mean? You know, given all the splendor that we've we've seen, we've seen all Christ's power and his glory, given all that, surely we must live in everything that we do in service to that king. We must, surely. But how do we do that? Well, okay, um, when I was a teenager, a teenage boy, all those millions of years ago when I was a teenager, um, my group of friends and I, we were obsessed with music. You know, we just loved uh, music, crazy about it. And um, each week we would just wait and wait and wait until the the next episode of uh, Melody Maker or uh, NME would come out so we could pour over these magazines to find out all about the sort of bands and the, the artists that we like. And you know what it's like with teenagers? You know what it's like with kids? Uh, you know, you start to idolise these bands and you start to dress like them and uh, you start to wear the same T-shirt and you start to grow your hair long. You know, you, you, uh, 
you look up to these people, don't you? You know, you, you kind, of, kind of put them on a pedestal and you follow their leads, right? Well, in a way, in a way, that's what we should do as subjects of Christ our King. I mean, we don't put him up on a pedestal because he's already there and he's already on his throne. But we do live following his lead as his loyal subjects. I mean, such should be our worship of our king that we should pour over his words and we should follow his values. Think about it. We should look to scripture, pour over scripture and we see, yes, aha, our king, he values the cause of the fatherless. He values the cause of widows. He values the cause of the unborn. He values the cause of the poor, of the disenfranchised. So we, as his people, we should value these causes. We should pick up these causes and we should fight for them. I mean, such is the scope of his kingdom. Such is its perfection that his must live in service to him. We must be submissive. And obedient subjects. But there is a second implication. We're going to end with this. We've seen, if nothing else, we have seen this morning that our Lord Jesus Christ is sovereign. But scripture also tells us that you and I, it tells us that we will one day reign with our king. Scripture tells us that the people of God will reign with our king. That we will reign with Jesus Christ. You see, this reign of Jesus that we've been talking about today, it is happening now. Okay, it is. Jesus Christ is king now. But there's also a sense that this reign of Jesus is not yet fully realized. This reign of Jesus Christ is not yet fully consummated. There is going to be a time where Jesus Christ returns to earth and he completely and he fully establishes his, his royal authority. There is going to be a time where we see our king and he's going to come in the clouds. He's going to come with all this pomp and circumstance of divine monarchy. He's going to come to the sound of trumpets. You know, he is going to, he is going to come to earth with the sound of the psalms of his royal attendants. And on that day, he's going to gather all of his subjects up to be with him. And the incredible thing about that day is that from that point onward, for the rest of eternity, it will not just be he who reigns. We also will be seated on thrones. And we will govern over creation. 2 Timothy 2 says of the people of God that if we endure, we will also reign with him. 
Revelation 5 says that God's people will eternally serve God and they will reign on earth. Is that not a thought to stir your soul this morning? That people like you and me, wicked people, sinful people, that through God's grace and blessing, we will be raised up to share in the ruling of the universe. What grace in the cross. Friends, I hope sincerely that uh, over the past few weeks, that you've seen that these Old Testament offices that we've been talking about, that these are not bizarre things. They're not consequential. They are not meaningless. I hope that you have seen that these offices of prophet, priest, and king, they existed so that Jesus Christ would come, that he would fulfill those offices, and that in doing so, that he would win salvation for his people. These offices should lead us to praise the name of Jesus Christ, because he is the Son of God. He is the Lord of glory. He is King. He rules now, and forevermore he shall reign. Let's pray.